Okay, Matthew chapter 1. Let's get in. We're going to run out of time. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. You guys are like, are you seriously preaching on this tonight? I am. Um, <laughs> David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Okay, so you guys understand the point of this part, right? Just a genealogy is naming the names. For the sake of boring reading, I'm going to skip down to verse 17 now. No, let's go uh, to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So this whole genealogy ended up at Jesus. Verse 17. So all the generations from Adam to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, that's the exile, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So the whole thing's blocked up in three sections of 14 names. Now the real, I shouldn't say the real stuff. The narrative in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, this is Isaiah 7 verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us pray. God, we come thankful this evening for your grace and the gift of restoration that you've given to humanity and for us who have experienced it. I pray that as tree of life, Father, you would help us to flourish in this restoration and that you would use us to spread the fruit to the nations that all on this mountain and around the mountain and off to the ends of the earth would experience through your people here the restoration that you desire to give to us. And we want to do this through the power and strength of your son, Jesus. So we ask that you come and make these truths real to our hearts and empower us for life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, ain't, oof, sorry. Joseph. Luke does Mary. 
So anguish pierced his heart so violently that there's a steady flow of bleeding confusion. And those thoughts were producing questions like, who is she? Why did she do this? Does she know me? Does she love me? Why did she betray me? I don't even know if I know her anymore. Well, he, he had to clear his head and just had to get out of the house. So abruptly he stands up, he grabs his cloak and runs out the door. And there she's left, bringing her face down into her lap, caressing her bulging belly, and Mary begins to sob alone with the dimming, flickering candlelight. And Joseph had no idea where he's going. He's just trudging through the deep of night, walking with mad, aimless strides. His legs are forging a path of confusion, just trying to seek answers and find reasons. He had this perfect plan with this happy future with this beautiful woman named Mary. And now that whole story has been shattered with three hellish words that she had uttered to him. I am pregnant. What do I do, God? What do I do? Joseph cried out that night. I I don't know what's become of her. Why did she betray me? Why did she commit adultery? What am I to do with her? And so as he cries out to God that night, we have a broken man who had a story and a plan, and that story has been shattered into tiny pieces. And out of the midst of that ash... God comes and speaks to Joseph and says, Joseph, let me introduce you to my story. And I'm going to invite you to find your place here in it. And so we see tonight the adventure that Joseph undergoes to find his place in God's story. Um, Christmas time is very familiar with this passage. So, Merry Christmas, everybody. Christmas in July. Here we are, the birth of Jesus. But this passage is not just for Christmas, and definitely not limited to Christmas at all. It's for us all, at all times. And what I want to show us through this passage is that Jesus came, He was born in order to live Israel's life. He relived the history of Israel and completed the history of Israel so that Israel could find their place in his story. Let me put that another way. Jesus came down to live your story so that we can find our place in his story. He lived our story so that you can live his story. And as I show you guys how in the world I conclude that from this passage, what we're going to find at the end is a very important application. An application that I would think is maybe one of the most important I can give to you guys yet. And it deals with identity issues and the worries that we have with fitting in and what people say and think about us and how to completely not care about the opinions of man and to move on life with complete confidence. Joseph discovers that, and I'm going to show you guys how as well. So... Let me give you guys a brief history before we get into that. A brief history of what God's story has been so far. Um, Adam was given a beautiful garden where God lived. He was told to spread this garden to the ends of the earth and make the entire globe God's presence. Adam fails. 
Israel is called to replace Adam's mission. God gives Israel an Edenic-like land called Canaan. And they're to cultivate Canaan into a garden of Eden and let that land expand to the ends of the earth and invite all the nations to find restoration with God in their temple in their Edenic land. But, like Adam... Israel fails to guard this holy land from impure, corrupt intruders, the Canaanites. They have this corrupt culture, and Israel borrows into it, and they mesh with them. And Israel is not restoring the nations. They, be, they fail completely. So because of the sin, God exiles, just like he did with Adam, kicks him out of Eden, he kicks Israel out of Canaan, sends them off to Babylon where they become little exiles living in a foreign country for years and years and years and what has happened see you guys are familiar with that because we just covered the last two messages around the prophets when Israel was in exile they're rejected from God now we're in the New Testament Israel's back in the land what happened, what have we missed this is what we've missed well Israel's exiled in a foreign land as prisoners Something miraculous happens. This world empire, Babylon, crumbles. And a new one rises up called Persia. And the king of Persia was a nice king. And he sent the Israelites back to their land. And let them build their temple. And that's how they get here. And then 400 years later, Jesus is born. So the exile's over? No. Physically, the exile's over. Israel's back in the land God gave them. But spiritually, the exile extends to the ends of the earth. For all of humanity, you, me, everybody on this planet, is in the cursed condition of being separated from God's Edenic presence. And God wants to bring them all back. But yet, humanity is still exiled. And some of us in here have been brought out of that exile and have found restoration with God. We've we've met up with Him. And God's calling us to bring the other exiles home. So is the exile still happening? Yes, there's many out there. And Jesus comes to finish the exile. By living your life so that we can live His life. He takes on your story and completes it so that we can take on his story and be completed with him restored. That's the brief history. So let's jump in. How does Jesus live Israel's story? The prophets were saying over and over, restoration is going to happen. Exile won't be forever. Restoration is coming. When you guys open Matthew 1, you open up the time the prophets foretold. They said, restoration is going to happen, exile will be over. Bam! Jesus. It's happening. It's begun. And it's continuing in us now. And will, Lord will it, tomorrow be done. <laughs> Hopefully, He will come back and all will be finally restored. So Jesus came to live and complete our story. Matthew shows this to us. Through this boring genealogy that we skipped some of just for the sake of time. (laughs) Through all those names, Matthew shows us this. Yes, I will show that to you. And through the prophecy of the virgin birth. He's going to show us that Jesus lives and completes our life and our story. So, how about the genealogy? The genealogy tells us the story of Israel and then links that story of Israel to Jesus and shows how Jesus completes that story of Israel. 
Remember, Israel's story has failed. They went to exile. Jesus takes on the story, and he relives it and completes it. And all of that is accounted right here. Four ways. Get ready. Get set. Way number one. First one. The genealogy links Jesus to two important figures. Abraham and David. Why right off the bat does Matthew say Jesus is linked to Abraham and David? Because Abraham and David were the two figures that God made significant promises to. And what Matthew's saying is Jesus has come to complete those promises. What was Abraham to what was the what was the promise to Abraham? What was the Abraham to promise? That's what I was about to say. Did you guys hear that? What was the promise to Abraham? Remember in Genesis 12, verse 3, while the whole world's in exile, he calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you into a nation. It's going to be called Israel. And this nation is going to bless every other nation to bring them back, to restore them to God. That's my promise to you, Abraham. Your country is going to restore the world. Well, Israel hasn't done it yet. But Jesus steps in, connected to Abraham. He's the fulfiller of that promise. He is going to restore the nations to God himself. And the promise to David. Remember 2 Samuel 7. He promised David two things. Your sons will have an eternal throne and rule over an eternal kingdom. But in the ashes of the exile, that eternal kingdom is done. Lo and behold, Jesus comes as the eternal king who's going to rule the eternal kingdom and in that eternal kingdom bring all nations back to God who are willing and judge those who are not. So Jesus is reliving Abraham and David and he's completing those promises. Number two. The genealogy establishes that Jesus is the new Adam. Look at verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Strangely, that little phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, is taken verbatim out of Genesis 5 verse 1. There it says, the book of the genealogy of Adam. So what Matthew's doing here is he's saying where the Bible began with the genealogy of Adam, it is now going to be completed with the genealogy of Jesus. Why is that important? Because under Adam, humanity is exiled from God and going to die in their exile and death. But Jesus comes and starts a new story, a new genealogy, and says, what Adam failed to do, I'm going to succeed in doing. I'm going to build the garden. I'm going to bring the Eden that lets the nations find restoration. I'm bringing this failed story to its completion. The genealogy of Adam's given way to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And those of you who've been born under Adam and under death and under the cursed exile from God can be reborn, John 3, right? Be born again underneath the genealogy of Jesus and be part of his story and the final end of Eden with God. That's Jesus taking over Adam. 
Number three. The genealogy suggests that Jesus is the eternal Sabbath. The eternal what? The eternal Sabbath. I'll tell you what that means after you read verse 17. So all the generations from Adam to David were 14. Then from David to exile was 14. And from the exile to Christ was 14. And what do you have there? All these names from verses 1 to 16 are three sets of 14 names. Now, I know you guys don't want to do math right now, so I'll do it for you. Three sets of 14 makes six sets of seven names. So, there's six sets of seven names, and then Jesus is named at the very end. He's the seventh, if you will. He's the seventh set of seven names. The Sabbath is seven. The Sabbath was what God did on the seventh day of creation. When everything was built, God said... I'm tired. No, he didn't say that, really. He, he just simply, it says that he rested. What does that mean? It means that God inhabited Eden as his dwelling place. And Israel was called to celebrate that remembrance of what God did every seventh day. So that they remembered, oh, we're not king of creation. God is king of creation. Or in other words... We don't live in our story. We live in God's story. He's the author. Okay. So the Sabbath is celebrated every seven days. As a day of rest and restoration for the body. And remembering what God did. Guess what happened every seven years? Called the Sabbath year. And the land rested every seven years. They weren't allowed to farm on the seventh year. The land had to rest too. And then, one more step. Every seven sets of seven years produced what was called the year of Jubilee. Jubilee just means great joy and excitement. And on that year, the the seventh set of seven years, what happened was every debt was erased in Israel. And every slave who had to sell themselves to pay off debts, those slaves were set free. On that day, the entire nation experienced restoration and rest. And here comes Jesus, the seventh figure in a set of sevens. He is our complete Sabbath. He is the ultimate Sabbath. In other words, he's coming as the Sabbath itself. You know what this means? (laughs) When Jesus confronted the Pharisees about the Sabbath, it wasn't because they're too legalistic and stupid and like you're doing the Sabbath all wrong. Jesus' point was, I am the Sabbath. Stop keeping it through these little rules. And start resting and finding restoration in me. This is who I am. So Jesus comes as the ultimate final rest and restoration of man. As the Sabbath himself. Our rest and restoration. And then fourth, what the genealogy shows about Jesus coming to live on our behalf. It's in verse 17 again. It's that the genealogy is structured in such a way so that Jesus is the climax of it. You notice that he's the end of it? It says in verse 17, right, that there's three sets of 14 names. Well, at the end of each of those three sets is a very important name or event. And verse 17 sums it up for us. At the end of the first set was David. At the end of the second set was exile. At the end of the third set was Jesus. 
So you see there's three climatic names or events. Why David? Because he was promised the eternal kingdom, right? Why exile? Because the exile threatened that eternal kingdom. The sin of Israel sent them off and destroyed the kingdom. But why Jesus? Because Jesus is the one who's going to fix the exile and restore everything back to King David. Himself would be King David. You see? Jesus is listed as the climax. There is exile, there's chaos, there's curse. But blessing and creation and restoration is happening in Jesus. So he comes on the scene reliving Israel's history and completing it in himself so that we can take on his story and live it without failure. But there's one more way we see this. And that's in the prophecy in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, We said that Jesus lives to complete our story. That's what Matthew means when he says that he fulfilled this passage. Fulfill means complete. Okay? If if you've been thinking that this passage means that Jesus fulfilled a prediction, some past prediction about the future and he came and fulfilled it, it's wrong. Jesus was completing something that happened in the past, and that's all that that means. Let me put it another way. Isaiah, who wrote that, wasn't writing like in you know his scroll um, hundreds of years ago, and suddenly like, whoa, I'm getting this vision. This is trippy. I see a woman pregnant, but she's never been with a man before. She's a virgin, but she's pregnant. What's going on? Oh, and now a baby's coming out. His name's Emmanuel. I gotta write this down. This must be important. That's that's not what happened. Okay, that's prediction, right? I'm predicting that Jesus will be born of a virgin didn't happen. This is what really happened. Isaiah and the king were talking. There were two nations threatening to wipe Jerusalem off the map. And so Isaiah tells the king, listen, God will save the city. And the king's kind of skeptical. Who's God? Whatever. And Isaiah says, to prove it to you, there's going to be a woman who's going to give birth to a baby. The baby is going to be called Emmanuel. And when you see Emmanuel born, you will know that God will save the city. So guess what happens in the next chapter? There's a baby born named Emmanuel. So, that thing already happened. There's no prediction here. What Matthew's doing is he's saying this event happened in the history of Israel, way back. And Jesus comes on the scene and is reliving that situation to complete it. What, what, how is he doing that? Well, remember, Isaiah and the king were under national threat from other enemies. They were fearing to be wiped off the map. When Jesus is born, Israel's under Roman oppression. They have this wicked, stupid king named Herod the Great. And they're in threat. Because of sin and closing, they're in threat of death. And what Matthew says is Jesus comes on the scene in the same situation. He is the ultimate Emmanuel who promises to the nation and all of humanity that he will save, not the city, but humanity. So just like in Isaiah, Jesus comes into a pressure situation and he's the Emmanuel, the God with us who will save all of humanity. He's completing a past story. 
He's making it grander. He's reliving the history and completing it. So, Jesus does all of that so that we can live in his story. And when you guys find your place in that story he's inviting you to live in, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find that the only thing that matters in life is that story and not what other people think or say about me. I'm not defined by America's story. I'm defined by this story because that's where I find my place. And Joseph learns this. And I want to show you what Joseph goes through and the ultimate surrender that he has to God's story and how much confidence it can give you guys and who you are when people say otherwise or you feel the pressure to impress or to change the way you are for them. So to understand this, let's go to this heart-wrenching story I began with where Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. Now, Brandon, they're not married. What's the big deal? Well, in our society, I know, this needs an apology. It may not be a big deal in our society. It should be, but it's not. In this time, though, to be impregnated outside of marriage, you would not be talked to in the whole town. You would just be shunned. Imagine going to the grocery store here and everybody clears the aisles because you're pregnant. (laughs) That's kind of the situation that they're in. Now, um... What does it mean that they're betrothed? Verse 18 says they're betrothed. The best way I can explain it is that they were engaged, but not quite. Or that they were legally pledged to be married. There's promises made. What happened with the betrothal is this. At the age of 13, or maybe a little bit older, but as soon as 13, okay? Some of you guys are older than 13. Some of you guys are at 13. Can you imagine what this would be like? Your parents get together with another family... And those parents start talking about who you're going to marry. <laughs> and they choose for you who you're going to marry. Now, now it's not that, okay, it's not like that sick and oppressive. Like, they actually listened to the kids, you know, what they wanted. And they kind of considered, okay, yeah, we get it. She's really ugly to you. Okay, fine. <laughs> or something. Um, they, they gave consideration. And, but ultimately, the parents made the decision. And when the decision was made, they made a contract with the other family. And once the contract was made, which kind of usually dealt with the exchange of goods or something, once the contract was made, you and your future hubby or wifey would then stand together and make vows. The vows that we have today, their own version, and they would do the vows right there. So that they were pledged and promised to be married. Legally, they were husband wife. But they didn't live together for a whole year. <laughs> You're married and you have to live with your parents for a whole year. Okay? Now why in the world do they do that? Well, there's a couple reasons. First, how do you know that your wife you're marrying is pure? That she hasn't been sleeping around? Well, within the time span of a year, if she was, her belly's going to grow. So it's a purity protection thing. The second reason is that the groom had to go to his house and make the house and build it for his wife. Usually, this might be fun for some of us, usually that meant you're building an extra room on your parents' house. <laughs> so that the whole family is eventually just going to live in this big compound. So, yeah, you can imagine taking guys, your wife, hey, I'm going to live with my parents. Get your own room, though. 
And then third, um, the third reason for the year delay was to allow the couple to, I mean, this has been arranged. They might agree for one another, but they don't really know each other and they're married. It's kind of weird, right? It's to allow this bonding and growing time in the safety of the home and family context where the parents can kind of be in char- like involved. And that way the family ties would be much stronger other than just we're separate beings. We're going to go live elsewhere. And, you know, we've got the whole anti-family thing going on here. They had very family-rooted thing. So with that in mind, can you now imagine they're betrothed? They're in that one-year waiting period, and Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant. It wasn't Joseph. He didn't do it. So it appears that Mary was unfaithful. And remember, they're considered married. So in order to separate, they actually have to go through a divorce. And if Mary is unfaithful, or Joseph, it's considered adultery. So here we go. Joseph is heartbroken because his wife is now an adulterer. And they're not even living together yet. Well, that night, well, we don't know actually what night, I don't think. But some night, God comes to Joseph while he's thinking about what to do. And God tells Joseph this. My wording. (laughs) Your story has been shattered, Joseph. Your happy future plans with Mary are not going to work out. After all, are they? No, what do I do? I have an idea. Why don't you participate in my story? It's not going to shatter on you. Okay, I'm in. Well, guess what this story entails, Joseph? The baby inside of Mary, it's not from anybody. She wasn't unfaithful. It was, um, I did it, okay? I sent, I, I formed, uh, not, don't, don't go there. I formed the baby in her is what that means. I, I realize after I said it, someone might take that some way. Um, so Joseph, don't be worried. She wasn't unfaithful. This is my plan. And guess what's going to happen? This baby is going to be named Jesus. Why is he going to be named Jesus? Because Jesus means that he's going to take the sins away from the people. In other words, Joseph, I am using your son to bring restoration to your nation and to all the nations. Oh my gosh, that's really cool. Like to be part of that, that's amazing. The child who's going to bring restoration is coming to your family. So, does Joseph sign up right away? No. Here's the catch. Um, If Joseph agrees to this plan... He's literally going to ruin his reputation. Because the Jewish law said this, that if you were betrothed and someone was unfaithful, you can divorce them only if it's not your baby. So then what that means is if Joseph's not separating from her and he's going to stay with her, he's admitting to the world this scandalous situation. He's admitting to all the world that I'm responsible for this scandal. I'm the one who messed up and did it. So Joseph is taking on a bad reputation. He's taking on slander and accusation if he chooses to go with this. But on the other hand, there's a little loophole. See, the law commanded that an adulterer must be stoned to death with rocks. So Joseph could say... I would rather keep my comfy little life and my good reputation and do away with her and move on. Just have her stoned. It's legal. So what would you do? 
we know what Joseph does. Joseph surrenders his story, takes on God's. What that means is he had such a love to see the nations restored that he surrendered and sacrificed his reputation to see it done. If this is what it takes, slander my reputation. I would rather live in God's story. So Joseph was able to, at that point, say, I found my place in God's story. And by living in this story, I don't care what man's opinion is of me. If they're not writing this, God is. I'm in a bigger, grander plan that dates 4,000 plus years ago and is going into eternity. I'm part of that plan. I care about what my master says, not what man says about me. So Joseph loved restoration over his reputation because he found his place in God's story. Now, some of us in here have heard these messages weeks upon weeks and we're still thinking, not me! That's exactly why I'm not joining God's story and surrendering mine to live under His. Exactly why. I don't want to lose my reputation. I've got an image to uphold, and I don't want to hang out with those geeks, and I've got people to impress. That's some of our attitudes in here. Whose story are you living in? Maybe you don't even know. How do you find out? Simple test. Who... Do you allow to form what you do? If you are concerned with America's opinions, then you're living in culture story. And culture story emphasizes reputation for self. So basically what that means is the story forms what you do to make you look good or to make you look respectable to the people you're trying to impress. But if you live in God's story... His mission is concerning what you do. Everything you're deciding is based upon what His mission dictates. That's when you know you're living in God's story. And God's story is not concerned with reputation for self. It's concerned with restoration for others. How do people get to this ridiculous place where they can care less what people think or say about them and move boldly forward like Joseph in the mission of God? How do they get to that place guys find your place God has a special spot for you in his story and his mission of restoration you find that place you love that mission above your own personal comforts and preferences and you will not care what I think about you you will not care what your parents think about you you will not care what your colleagues and student share what are those people called your students and your class care about you some of your homeschooled you won't care anyway about all your peers you're not going to care because you're going to be obsessed with a new identity inside of the mission of God which is this Jesus came to live your story so that you can live his. You know what that means? If you're living God's story, your story is his story. 
So what people say about you is absolutely false unless what they say about you is what God has already lived for you. He's completed. He's finished. He's accomplished on your behalf. So, um, Tree of Life, we're at a critical juncture here. You can reject God's story or you can embrace it. And you're just going like this whole time, like, whatever. You know, like, I don't care. Well, you should. Because God's story is the only story that ends in the eternal Eden where you will be restored for eternity. The only story that ends that way. Every other story, yours, America's, culture's, ends in death. It ends in exile forever. But I care about my reputation. Fine. Choose that story. But I respect that Jesus came to live my story and to complete it. And that if I choose to live in his story, that is my new identity. Is that Jesus Christ lived on my behalf and accomplished what I could not do. He finished. He he completed. And when I get criticized, when I get critiqued, when I get poked at, you know, my foreign jo- former job, it was a foreign job too, when I, get, when I got goaded for being a Christian there and all the things that I didn't do that they did or I did that they didn't do, it just rolled like water off my back. Because like, you know what? I'm not living in your guys' little like story that's going to end in death. I don't really care about what that story demands. I'm living in a greater, higher one that has a global mission that's reaching every nation, people, tribe, and tongue. And I care about what he thinks about me. And that's where I'm moving on. And if you don't understand that you have a place in that program, in that story, that you've got a, a certain spot to fill then you're not going to get it. And you're going to be concerned about the other spot you're filling in society and in America's story or yours. But when you have that place and you realize that you have a, you, there's, there's something God's given you to do and that you fit in here, you belong here, you're within the family of Christ, you're more concerned all of a sudden about that. And that's what Joseph learned. Okay, bring it on. The entire nation can hate me. Bring it on. Because I am bringing restoration to those who are looking for it. And by the way, this story about this improper birth did get to the entire nation. If you read John 8, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being born of immoral relations. So Joseph suffered reputation on a national level. Like, can you imagine your name being flashed on the news? That was Joseph. Yet because he understood that God has a place for him in his story... Reputation means nothing next to restoration. So, find your place in God's story. Jesus lived and completed our lives so that our reputation is found and bound up in His mission of restoration. And that's where you're going to be happy. We have a new identity and we now live and die by that identity. We live and die by the identity we have in His story. Live and even die in that identity. No matter what they think, say, do. So Father, I ask for your grace to give this to us.
I'll just find our place there. God, give us a hunger and a passion for restoration, even if it costs our reputation. So to help us, Father, we pray that the Spirit of the living God would fall afresh on us tonight. You would melt us, you would mold us, you would fill us and you would use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.